You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we were talking about Isaiah chapter 60. And we still have a lot of ground to cover in this chapter, so let's go ahead and get started. Picking up once again at verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, Day and night they shall not be shut. The people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Now let's stop right there and let's go ahead and once again uh, reiterate where we've been. We're talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. Remember, the coastlands shall hope for him, the coming one, the Christ, who brings his kingdom, a kingdom of peace. But notice that the foreigners shall build up your walls. These are the converted Gentiles. As remember, Jesus sends his apostles out into the world to make disciples by baptizing and teaching in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now here we have that contrast between the kingdom of God on the one hand, the spiritual kingdom that comes through the preaching of his word, where the Holy Spirit works to convert hearts, opening eyes to see and ears to hear. But on the other hand, you have these earthly kingdoms, these temporary kingdoms, that are always in league with the devil, trying to prevent the kingdom of God from coming. That is, trying to stop the preaching of God's word, so that the people could not hear it or would not hear it. But the nation that will not serve you, so again, this is the language of God speaking to his church, that the bridegroom speaks to the bride, that Christ is talking to his city, heavenly Jerusalem. Now, of course, heavenly Jerusalem is an eternal city. It's the city of God, the place where God dwells in the midst of his people. So on the one hand, you have the earthly temporary kingdoms who are trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. These kingdoms will perish. These nations will be utterly laid to waste. But on the other hand, you have the kingdom of God, the eternal city. Now, here we want to make a distinction between those who are outside the kingdom of God and those who are inside the kingdom of God. Either you are in the darkness, that means that you are being deceived by the devil and you are dead in your own sin. Or you are in the light. 
living in the kingdom of God with the word of life. That he's in the midst and he is the one who cleanses us from all sin. Now, there, there is no salvation outside of the city of God. Either you are in through faith or you are out in unbelief. You are in a state of unrepentance and rebellion against God. In the gospel, according to St. John, he puts it in this way at the end of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Of course, the invitation to walk in the light in which you are in Christ and your sins are cleansed Salvation is to those who trust in Yahweh, and of course, Jesus is Yahweh. But the problem is that when the light comes into the darkness of the world, the people of the world preferred the darkness of the light. Thus, the evangelist John gives us a commentary on this reality in chapter 3 of his gospel, saying, saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Now, I want you to remember the theme of light that we have in Isaiah chapter 60. Again, the chapter opens up at verse 1 saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall walk to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." Now, we want to be very clear when we're talking about the light, it is the light of the gospel, the light that cleanses from sin, so that the church is sent out into a darkened world as the light of the world, reflecting the light of Christ. But the light that we reflect is a light of the free forgiveness of sins, in which we can show forth the mercy that God has upon us as he cleanses us from our sins that we want others to join with us and cling to this living word. Now, when we say that the church is the light that is sent out into the world, the church is not the spotlight trying to spot the sins of others. Instead, the church is the light of the world that the world may see the cleansing of sin in Christ. The Christ is the light and the life. He comes to bring to us forgiveness, hope, salvation, and reconciliation with the Father.
Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 60, picking up at verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Now, there's a couple of things that we want to pick up on here. First, we want to understand the idea of place. Whenever we talk about a place of God's presence, we are using incarnational language. Uh, this is a similar language that we have going all the way back to Deuteronomy, that place where the glory of God is present, the place where God meets with his people, which, of course, throughout the whole Old Testament is that tabernacle. It's the temple. It's the glory of the Lord there in the midst of his people. For he is Emmanuel, that is God with us. Now you see this back in, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 12, in which we hear these words. You shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. Again, I, I want you to see this image that we have. It is a place where you eat before the face, the presence of God. It is a place of rejoicing. It is a place where you go to meet God here on earth. This, of course, is the incarnational language of the place where God's glory dwells that the word takes upon flesh and tabernacles amongst us, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that place where we eat before Yahweh's face. And in the most profound way, it is in the supper in which he institutes, in which he promises to be bodily present with us, giving to us his body and his very blood to eat and to drink for life and salvation, and the forgiveness of sins. Now, going back to this incarnational language of the place, that's, that's the place where God wants us to go to find him. This is the way to the Father, and there is no other way except through the Son. So apart from the Son, there is no other way to receive the forgiveness of sins. There is no other way to obtain favor with the Father. It is only by the person and work of Christ that is received by faith. Now notice that besides the place, we're talking about the place of his feet. Now the place of his feet is the place where he stands. And also remember that image of feet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That this is also the place where his message is given by the messenger. So the place of his feet is the place where he appears with his people. Now That'll be the tabernacle and also the temple later on in the Old Testament. Now, for example, in 1 
Chronicles chapter 28, David is referencing the temple, the place where God's glory dwells, the place of his feet, where he stands there to appear to the people, to bring them the message of good news. And so in 1 Chronicles 28, then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparation for building. David is talking about the location, the place of grace in which you appear before God's face, which, of course, is the temple. That is a picture of the incarnation. It's at that place and that place alone where God promises to be there for the benefit of his people. Now, let's take another example from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 43. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. Now again, notice here the contrast between the place that God chooses for his name to dwell versus the high places of these earthly kings, even earthly kings of Jerusalem, the places where they chose to perform their rituals, their rites, their ceremonies, but they had no promise. They did this without the word of God. Their place, God didn't promise to be present. God promises at the place where his feet are dwelling, his footstool at the place of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, you'll see this image in such books as the Psalter, in which we hear it in the words of Psalm 99. Exalt Yahweh our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Or in Psalm 132, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Okay, now both of these have that dwelling place as the temple. Remember the Psalter itself is a prayer book. It is a book of hymns, psalms, chanted as the people go to the temple to go before the altar to meet God, to be in the presence of God who bestows his forgiveness and his mercy and his faithfulness to the promises upon his people. Now, later on in the book of Isaiah, we will pick up this theme of the footstool yet once again, that all the earth is his footstool. So in Isaiah 66, verse 1, thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? 
of course, asking back this question about David and the temple that he would produce. That that temple of David, of course, was decimated. It was demolished by the Babylonians. Remember, this whole second half of Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66 is giving comfort to the people who have been defeated by the earthly kingdom of Babylon. Now, God is assuring them that his promises will not be fulfilled in an earthly kingdom or even an earthly temple. In fact, the earthly temple at Jerusalem was just a picture But the kings of Jerusalem had distorted and deformed that image and made it no different than a pagan temple. And thus, it had to be destroyed. But even the destruction of that temple is a picture of the death of Jesus. Whereas, also, the rebuilding of that temple is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus. But that temple must be destroyed And that temple in Jesus must stand forever. Now, this image of of the heavens being God's throne and the earth being his footstool is picked up in the language of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Of course, in chapter 5, Jesus is in earthly Jerusalem. Now, it's here in Matthew's gospel that the king is there in their presence the true king, the true David, the one who is not merely a king of an earthly kingdom, but he is the king of kings of a heavenly kingdom. That he's there talking to them about how Jerusalem, that is earthly Jerusalem, must be destroyed. That his own temple of his body must be destroyed. But in three days, he will raise it up again, being that stone the builders rejected, but becoming the cornerstone, the foundation stone. Earthly Jerusalem must be laid to waste in order to rebuild heavenly Jerusalem. But now Jesus is talking as he's approaching Jerusalem and approaching these days in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, this image of the king coming to his city, the king who comes to sit on his throne, the king who comes to put his feet on his footstool. In this, we see the ascension of the Christ who ascends to the right hand of the Father to sit upon the throne and to place his feet on the footstool. Now that image, of course, is given to us in Psalm 110, where David records and says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I want you to see that picture, that you have a king sitting on the throne and he places his feet on the footstool. Now, in the ancient world, a footstool would be set before the throne, and on that footstool would be the image of the enemies of the king. That is, those who are trying to prevent his kingdom from prevailing. Those who are always trying to plot and to plan to overthrow the king and his kingdom. But on that footstool would be this picture of the enemy so that his 
feet would rest on his enemies. Of course, that picture for us is one in which we see the foot of Christ crushing the serpent's head. Of course, the serpent will bite his heel, but that heel will crush the serpent's head. Now, that's the picture of the king with his feet on the footstool. The footstool, of course, is here on earth. The enemies are those on earth who are in league with the devil, who are trying to prevent his kingdom coming by preventing the preaching of his word. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, we pick up on the same imagery in which we hear that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, in the letter of the Hebrews, we see the picture of the ascension as the one who is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which, of course, Psalm 110 refers to. But it's in Hebrews, in that letter to the Hebrews, where we see the Christ in his kingdom that he sits down at the right hand of God, that he is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, this is a picture of the proclamation of the gospel. Now, Christ reigns as king right now. We're not waiting for some time period, some point in the future, when he'll finally, eventually reign and rule in his kingdom. Instead, he reigns and he rules right now. But he does this through his word. He reigns in the hearts of believers through the gospel in which he assures believers of the forgiveness of sins, that that gospel message overturns any kind of ruling of the conscience, that the conscience says that I am outside the kingdom of God because I've sinned. The conscience says that I'm a rebel in rebellion against God. The conscience testifies to all the sins and wickedness that we continue to, co- to commit. But it's that word of gospel that overturns the conscience and it reigns and rules over it, assuring the believer that the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of peace, peace in the conscience that he reigns and he sets the conscience straight. He justifies, that is, pardons from guilt. He gives his peace. Of course, there are those who don't want to hear this word of peace. They have rejected the pardon that he offers. They prefer the darkness of the light. Thus, in Isaiah, we have a picture of this spiritual battle for the souls. We have those who are outside the kingdom of God trying to fight against the kingdom of God, trying to prevent the kingdom of God from coming. And then we have those who are inside the kingdom of God through faith. But as the reign and the rule of Christ goes out through the preaching of the gospel, we are foreseeing the conversion of the Gentiles once again. Throughout this whole chapter, we have this theme, that the gospel light will go out from Jerusalem, being the light of the world, that the nations will come to this light. And here we have the picture as the glory of Lebanon adorning the temple. 
Now, of course, that image right there itself is the image of the building of the temple with the trees from Lebanon during the days of Solomon. And that becomes a picture of trees coming from outside of the land of Israel being brought into the place and the presence of God. In fact, that same kind of an image of the glory of Lebanon, the trees from Lebanon, the Gentiles, the outsiders being brought inside, is the same picture that Hosea will paint for us in chapter 14 of his book, in which the prophet Hosea speaks in unison with Isaiah about the coming kingdom of Christ. Now, the picture that Hosea paints for us is this. The Yahweh speaks and says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, do you hear the similarities with Isaiah talking about the kingdom of God in agricultural terms, the terms of the earth, the terms of life and fruit, the terms of the dew, the water coming from heaven and giving life? The idea that this vine will spread out, the branches will branch out. For this is what Christ does as the branch, the king. His kingdom spreads out to the ends of the earth. And in particular, you have three times this reference to Lebanon, the trees of Lebanon, the fragrance of Lebanon, and even the wine of Lebanon. Now see how this image here shows us a vision of the conversion of the Gentiles. That the kingdom of Christ will spread out, branch out to the nations, and the nations will be gathered by him, and they will adorn his temple. Now remember, the language of the temple is incarnational language, talking about his body but also talking about his church. Now behold and look with me at the high priest, the high priest with the people of God. The high priest goes and stands before God for the benefit of the people. He bears the sins of the people and he goes into the presence of the Holy of Holies and he speaks with one voice, the voice of the people. The high priest is the head and the people the body. So here the Lord is going to adorn his temple with trees from Lebanon. Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 60, we pick up at verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. 
instead of wood, bronze, and instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Now again, notice that we are talking about the work of God. This is grace language. This is what he does for the benefit of his people. He is building his church. Of course, it is on that rock that he will build his church, that stone of stumbling, the rock of offense that the builders rejected. But notice that language of builders. The builders are the religious leaders, the rulers, the priests, the teachers. Now, these overseers and taskmasters will be replaced with the apostles and their successors. In the conversion of the Gentiles, we will have evangelical preachers. The overseers, that is the bishops, will bring peace. And the taskmasters, they will bring righteousness. And how will they do that? By preaching Christ. Christ who is our peace and Christ who is our righteousness. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.